2: you have an airbnb your home might be worth more than you think find out how much at airbnb.com slash host
0: okay major sexual content warning on this one and if that's not going to get you to listen i don't know what will We're discussing the metaphysical ramifications of a floating, glowing, sentient jar of semen, which must mean that we've made it to Act 2 of Goethe's Faust Part 2. Come for the university humor? Literally. Mephistopheles takes a whole scene out just to prank on a grad student. Stay for the attempts, on the part of Goethe, not us, to conjure a realm of guilt-free pornography. And you thought the first act was weird. The Cannonball is a member of the Agora Podcast Network. Check out some more shows on the network like Sam Hume's Pax Britannica. It's a narrative history podcast on the British Empire, with the first season being an exploration of early English colonization and the upcoming second season centering on the wars of the Three Kingdoms. And if after all this vulpurgisnux stuff, you're still feeling itchy for witches, Sam also does the history of witchcraft, which covers the witch hysteria of the early modern period, as well as an assortment of other spooky stuff, all in an educational vein. If you're online, check us out at thecannonballpodcast.wordpress.com, find us on Facebook at The Cannonball Podcast, and on Twitter at CannonballPod. One last note, if you're in the New York area and need reading and writing tutoring or are interested in online tutoring, let us know. Claude has a tutoring business on the side and two kids, so he's always looking for a few more clients. Claude, that's me. If you need some help, send an email to Inc. that's C-L-A-U-D-E-M-O-I-N-C, at gmail.com. We can also produce literary lectures on demand. Not entirely certain what situations would call for that. But for some quality literary infotainment, hit us up. Welcome to the Cannonball, a podcast attempt to read all of the books in Harold Bloom's list of the Western Canon. This is Claude Meyer and Gooser, and with me is my co-host Daniel Doherty. Daniel, how you doing?
1: Hey, hey, Claude. Uh, I'm good. I'm good. I'm feeling. You know, we're coming off of our high from our uh, just uh, commanding. Uh, appearance at the Intelligent Speech conference and uh, if anyone listening if you were there uh, in the room with us uh, wasn't that a good time that was terrific um everybody else hey there's always next year you can join the fun um but of course we are now back onto the main track of the show after a, a delightful diversion into poetry which has inspired me to learn more and claude is going to actually try to teach me more and that look 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 for that for one of our many side projects <laughs> but we're um We're back and we're still in Faust. We are in Faust part two. We are now in act two.
0: It's, it's been a long week. It's been a long day. It's been a long month. Um, I, we're, we're both extraordinarily burnt out (laughs) at this point. (laughs) Um, I did about six or seven pages and notes on Faust and three of them disappeared. Uh, (laughs) you've got, um, kids to contend with as well as a pandemic. And I'm trying to teach, uh, from afar. I've got my summer classes going. Uh, they're almost at an end. And, um, you know, at this point, my son thinks, uh, my occupation involves just taking my laptop into the bathroom Mm -hmm. and kind of being in there for two hours every couple of days. Um, maybe that's what teaching entails now. Who knows? Uh, Anyway, all of this is to say we're going to do our best with Act 2 of Faust Part 2, just like we did our best with Act 1 of Faust Part 2 and the rest of Faust, but one, this is extraordinarily baffling stuff, Mm -hmm. Uh, and two, I'm tired.
1: (laughs) (laughs) Hey, you know what though, man? like Part of the magic of podcasts is the uh, I don't want to use a word like intimate, but I can't really think of another one. There's a kind of intimate connection that you, you can get with, uh, people who produce podcasts in that, um, or at least the kind that I like to listen to, uh, in that, you know, you can get a real connection on like, um, I don't know. It feels like real people. Yeah. yeah. Like we're, we're not reading off of a script. We're not nicely produced. Nothing, nothing against script <laughs> podcasts that have scripts that are nicely produced. But, uh, for me anyway, the magic in a podcast is when, you know, you sort of get some connection with, uh, with the people making them. They're real people. And what can be yeah, realer, uh, what can be realer than being burned out from work and your brain fried by a baffling piece of literature? I think we're good to go.
0: Well, I, so our unprofessionalism is part of our charm. Now, speaking of intimate connections, uh, <laughs> I, we'll talk about this in, uh, nice segue, but we'll talk about this in, you know, the opener. Uh, but, um, this is a content warning episode. Yeah. Uh, the the end of this act is literally covered in cum. Um, <laughs> right. it's, it's a little gnarly. I'm not trying to be gross. Uh, Gertha is making me gross. But um, th- there's a lot about uh, act two that, you know, I don't know why you would have children listening to this. Um, I, I don't know why anybody is listening to this. Uh, it's a it's a but, substitute uh, for
1: an actual education if you don't want to send your kid <laughs> back to school.
0: <laughs> um, but um, but you know, if you do have kids, maybe don't let them listen to this one. Uh, that's that's just a, a, a heads up. Um, my children are in bed; they're far away from me right now, so they can't hear the vileness that uh is <laughs> making me <laughs> But anyway, yeah, the the I'll I'll give an overview, I guess, but before we jump in. Um, you know, the part of what Goethe found so appealing about classicism or or a particular kind of classicism, the sort of antiquity or use of antiquity that he's sort of employing here, uh, if that made any sense. Part of what was so appealing to him. About classical myth and classical literature is the completely different moral scheme. Mm-hmm. Um, there, there was a frankness about matters of sexuality that wasn't clouded or, or clouded, wrong word, that wasn't <laughs> obscured by, um, By severe moral judgment. Yeah, it wasn't inflected Um,
1: by severe moral judgment, we could say.
0: Yeah, yeah. Uh now that's that's Goethe's reading of this, you know, if you know your your antiquity and you know your Greeks, you know that classical theater was all about moral judgment. Yeah. Uh, but, yeah. Um,
1: but I guess not not in the particular not in the realm of the erotic in the way that Goethe was sort of accustomed to at least. Exactly. And, and and that's where the sort of, you know, him being a a horny boy That's where he really uh, finds some inspiration.
0: Well, that's – I mean, that was the thing. In antiquity, the Greeks and the Romans were were pretty unabashed about matters of sexuality um, or at least reporting on matters of sexuality or discussing certain things. And um, that was very, very different from Goethe's view of his time as extremely prudish, which creates – um, this kind of okay prudery. I guess I'm getting psychoanalytic here. But prudery has this tendency to um create the create pornography mm-hmm. to create exploitation because it it creates this realm of activity or realm of um. Realm of thinking or realm of – I'm losing my words. But it creates this realm that um, is cast off, off to the side, is othered in this weird kind of way that is desirable in some sense, but then gets mixed up with all this other kind of shame and guilt. Mm-hmm. And what Goethe saw in antiquity was a lack of that kind of shame of shame and guilt. That doesn't mean it wasn't there. It's what Goethe sees in it. Right. And it's what he's trying to employ – Throughout Act Two. Um, That's what draws him to it. So, the classical Volpurgisnacht that Faust and Mephistopheles partake in is a kind of other side to the Volpurgisnacht of Part One, which all has to do with eroticism, shame, and guilt. You know, there's that that, that (laughs) moment at the end. You know, Faust keeps dancing with these hot, naked witches and then there's this bloody mouse that jumps out of one of them's mouth, and it's like, ooh, ew, ew, gross! And you know, you can think through what that might symbolize and mm-hmm. so on and so forth, and Faust's own, perhaps Goethe's own repulsion of feminine bodies, or something like that. But there's also the sort of lurking angst of the Gretchen plot and everything that happens with Gretchen. Um, you know, Gretchen is gone. Uh, for the most part, in part two, she returns at the end. you know spoiler alert for two hundred year old play but uh she returns at the end but um the the thing that he 's trying to employ here, I think is you know this eroticism as as chaotic in a positive sense, there is no structure, there is no boundary, and he tries to embrace that in use antiquity to explore that and find this kind of relief from this overarching pressure to moralize and and codify everything under Mm -hmm. this um, ethical gaze. But I'm making it sound a lot more (laughs) coherent than it
1: is. (laughs) I was going to say, when you put it all that way, it seems like a nice, tidy, sort of uh, solid theme to work with. But um, Um, what kind of chaos actually – uh, 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 gets this across to us, Claude. What, what what is the action of the play? Can you summarize right. the plot?
0: <laughs> Jesus Christ! You know, I, I was going to save this till we get to Proust, but um, <laughs> we'll, we'll be dead by then. Um, no, uh, there's a, a, a Monty Python sketch. It's a, a game show where you're given 30 seconds to summarize Proust. <laughs> 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 that's, that's the whole show. It's the summarized Proust competition, and um, you know that that's that's sort of what this is like. Summarizing Proust uh, would be easier than summarizing twenty pages of, of Faust, uh, but I, I can do my best uh, with the four pages of notes that I have, and I guess I'll riff on the rest. Anyway, we we start off not in the classical of Alpergus, knife. that sort of jumped the gun a little bit there. Um, but we, we start off, uh, revisiting Faust's study from part one. So we go back to, we, we go from the Emperor's Palace back to, um, medieval Germany where, uh, Faust, you know, had his kind of studious lair and, if you remember from last episode, uh, Faust has been knocked out because the beauty of Helen caused him to raise a magic key that he banged against a thing and exploded. Um, so he kind of paralyzed himself with an extraordinarily intense orgasm. Um, keep that on the back burner because it's going to happen again. Yeah. All right. So, um, anyway uh mephistopheles comments on the way that helen has paralyzed faust um there's something about the the experience with beauty which uh produces paralysis right in any case there's a little bit of comedy back and forth um Mephistopheles meets the, the sort of old servant who's still around and he says that, uh, Wagner, Wagner, who was the, the grad student from way back when, has now become a doctor. And, um, that's sort of like the, the, the reason that Wagner is here and the reason that we go back to, um, the the sort of academic satire is because Wagner produces the homunculus, and the homunculus is kind of like the guiding light, I mean, really sort of in a literal sense mm-hmm. of the 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 classical underworld, the classical Volkurgisnox. Um but before we do that, we have a little bit of an anti Chopinarian satire. Um this grad student shows up to sort of parry with Mephistopheles for a little bit and sort of um they have this back and forth where the grad student is basically saying that reality only takes place inside his own head, and Mephistopheles sort of messes with that. And he has this meta-theatrical moment where he breaks the fourth wall to sort of talk to the audience and kind of do a Groucho Marx bit. But um, the the reason I'm bringing this up, it's a minor episode, it's a minor little piece, but it it signals the way that <sighs> Faust or, or Goethe would just. Throw things in, yeah. Like there, there's something sort of willy nilly about um, Faust Part Two, which is kind of what I like about it. Yeah, yeah. Uh, I, I had a conversation with uh, Rachel, that that friend of mine who came on before to sort of situate Goethe for us, and I was talking to her a little bit about Faust Part Two because uh, she'd recently reread it, and she said, you know, one of the interesting things is that. It functions more like a postmodern pastiche, and in, in yeah. a lot of ways, it anticipates postmodernity in the way that Goethe will just pick up on something and write it in there. So there's this way; it's it's really a radically eclectic text, mm-hmm. you know.
1: Yeah, and I would um, wonder how much of that might have to do with the. Um, I know Rachel also mentioned in that episode she did for us the uh, with you about how. How the how this play was composed over decades. Like it was something that Faust would pick up and put down and add to and redact, and etc. Like there was, you know, it was like what like twenty years before it was like yeah. a final a finally. And I think that probably has something to do with it too. Like the I mean, if you're picking something up and putting it down by the time you come back to it like of course you're not going to be in the same sort of headspace that you were the last time you left it you have something else is sticking in your craw you know you have, so <laughs> yeah. you have something else that you need to like you know get a, some other bile to to vent from your spleen you know
0: yeah <laughs> so i i think you're right that it's it's i mean that also adds to the hodgepodge nature i find the hodgepodge nature kind of like I said, I, I find it appealing. Mm-hmm. Like there's there's something about it that Okay, I, I, I may have brought this up before, and I apologize if I'm boring everybody with old anecdotes. Well, okay, around the time that T. S. Eliot wrote the Wasteland, a critical movement was beginning to emerge in England and America called New Criticism. Uh this is in the the th- like 30s, 40s. Mm-hmm. And it was uh, a sort of critical mode that was, it, it arose to be able to account for modernism and to account for those works that modernism claimed it was, you know, drawing from. Well, okay. Modernism and ism isn't drawing from things. The, the, the claims of the works that the modernists were drawing from. Right. And there was this, this real effort to go like beat by beat, word by word through the wasteland to show how every single word had symbolic resonance. Yeah. And you know, scholars were doing that with Ulysses as well. And there was this intense desire to see the wasteland not as like the individual pieces are fragmented, but there is a unified structure, a unified whole to it. Um yeah there there are resonances, but to say there's a unified hold to that thing really kind of misses the point uh yeah. like you're 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 arguing something that that isn't really relevant to the poem um you know one of the problems that I keep having with the Norton edition of faust uh, of Faust is that there's too much of an argument in the editorial apparatus around whether or not – or there's this debate it, – it puts too much emphasis on this debate about whether or not Faust is a unified text or a fragmentary chaotic text Yeah, as if one or the other will make all the difference in the world. No, it's a damn mess, but the messiness of it is what's appealing. <laughs> right.
1: <laughs>
0: Absolutely. <laughs> anyway, I'm sorry. And 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 the same goes for for the wasteland the messiness of the wasteland is really what's appealing about it um I, you know, the messiness of Ulysses is what's appealing about it. In fact, I, you know, if we ever get to Ulysses, I'm going to make mm-hmm. this the, the case, and this is my own personal reading, is that all of the weird scholarly apparatus, all of the weird kind of structure and stuff that Joyce put into it is just there to throw you off. Because at the end of the day, none of that matters as much as Leopold Bloom yeah. and Molly. Yeah, yeah. Like the, the actual characters and what they have to say. The symbolism is is like, okay, that's a fun structural thing, but it's less about that more about um, these fascinating, ordinary, everyday people. Um, anyway, so, <laughs> uh, there's this back and forth with the graduate student and finally, um, Mephistopheles goes to meet Wagner – and Wagner is all depressed and and uh intense and you know um he's he's thrown himself into this kind of I guess depressive delirium. And it's – okay. I'll just read it from Luke's translation. Uh, Mephistopheles enters and says, A well meant greeting, sir, to you, Wagner, anxiously. Greetings by the sour's ruling star, Soto Voce. But hold your words in breath. I am not far from a great work's goal now to be displayed. Mephistopheles, sotto Voce. What great work's that? Wagner, in a whisper, a man is being made. Mephistopheles, a man – so, if you locked an amorous pair up in your chimney stack somehow <laughs> okay um, we have this moment where Wagner is being um he he's a kind of dr Frankenstein figure,
1: yeah, yeah,
0: and this is um this is a real kind of parody of that that sort of scientific drive mm-hmm. um. I believe on one of the Halloween episodes, we talked a little bit about Frankenstein. Mm -hmm. Uh, But, you know, Wagner is desperately trying to make a man. Um, (laughs) Dr. Frankenstein was trying to create life. Uh, It's not that hard, guys. (laughs) Right. Um, Uh, the the joke here, and it's it's a kind of joke that I think is, or, or not really a joke. There's an ironic suggestion that's implicit in Mary Shelley's text, but Goethe just makes it explicit. Like, <laughs> Mephistopheles points out, "Hey, oh wow, so you're you're watching some people fuck around here? Like, what's going on?" Um, no, what Wagner is trying to do is create the perfect man. Um, this kind of mythical, weird, sort of part, um, genetically engineered, part AI homunculus. Mm-hmm. All right. So, do you know what a homunculus was, Daniel? Yeah.
1: So, in, as I understood it, it was uh, a part of the sort of alchemical tradition that it would be a sort of magical construct that you could decoct. A, a tiny human being out of some, out of various essences, which were cooked or distilled in the right order and at the right, uh, temperatures and whatnot. That one could, uh, in fact, create a tiny man, the, the homunculus, a diminutive of homo, uh, and, and have him in a little alembic there in your, in your alchemy lab.
0: It's a jar of cum. It's a glowing <laughs> jar of cum. Um. According to the alchemical tradition, that's what it was. It was like semen that had been doctored to become this tiny little man in a jar. Which was part of the
1: conception of what semen was and what the seed was is that the, what is expelled were essentially microscopic humanoid forms that then would grow within a, a woman's body as the sort of proper environment for it. But yeah, yeah. So it, it, it was sort of an extension of that theory of what, you know, of, of what ejaculate is.
0: <laughs> yeah. So Wagner has a jar of cum that. Uh, comes to life. All right. So uh, there's apparently a scholarly debate. It, it, it comes to life when Mephistopheles shows up. Mm-hmm. And there's a kind of scholarly debate according to the, the Norton reading. But, um, there's a reading of this scene that suggests that Wagner didn't spark the homunculus into life by himself. Uh, it needed Mephistopheles as a kind of catalyst, uh, which goes to some of Goethe's sort of thinking in part one about how humanity needs this kind of demonic or nihilistic negation as a kind of push to action. So that makes a kind of symbolic sense, but Mephistopheles talks to the, um, the homunculus, the homunculus can read into Faust's thinking. Um, and Alright, they, they sort of talk through this. The homunculus says, Well, dad, it worked, you see, and how are you? Come now, embrace me tenderly, but do be careful. Please, my glass must not be cracked. That is the way things are, in fact. For natural growth, the world's too small a place, but art must be enclosed in its own space. Um, I, I'm not quite sure the German term that, uh, Luke is translating, but the suggestion here is that, homunculus is something artificial, homunculus is something created, homunculus is something crafted, and it has to sort of stay in its place within mm-hmm. its frame um, if it is to function. All right, all right. you know, Keep that in mind. A- at the end of this, the homunculus is going to throw himself against the beautiful erotic seashell of Galatea and scatter his essence all over the Aegean where <laughs> – a parade of nymphs and dryads and other things of the ocean sort of bathe around and <laughs> craft this moonlit, healthy glow. From yes, or magical cum. Of yeah. the homunculus. Um, all right, but there's this way in which uh, you know Goethe is also playing with aesthetics. What is it once it breaks the frame? It's life. It's mm-hmm. existence. It's um the energy that keeps the world moving. So there's a kind of aesthetic thing back there as well that I believe is going to come back up in Act 3. Um, it breaks the boundaries. To break the boundaries between life and art is to break through to life. And that <laughs> – See, that's what has me coming back. Act one and act two are like this giant pageant. The the this pageant that everyone takes part in, and at certain points you lose the distinction between art and reality. Yeah. That the illusion becomes just as much a part of reality as the reality. Um the artifice is a kind of parade that everyone takes part in. Uh, so I'm not quite sure where he's going with this. Um, it's been a while since I've read the whole of this, but it's just this thing that keeps coming up. So I guess, you know, what I want to do is sort of chart that throughout the rest of it. Um, anyway, so the homunculus, uh, and now my book literally fell apart. <sighs> I did so much flipping around that uh, my copy of Luke's translation just emptied on me. <laughs> All right. So anyway, um, uh talks to the homunculus and says, hey, can you help me out? I've got this dude with me. And the homunculus you know, wants to know what's the issue. And they ask if the homunculus can see inside his brain and, he's, and he can. Um the homunculus looks inside of Faust's brain, and Faust is still in that kind of erotic reverie over um, over Helen. And he sees a sort of eroticized vision of Helen, and it's – what we were sort of talking about, it's the full chaos of eroticism without the sort of moral castigation. Mm-hmm. Um, what he tells is the story of Leta and the Swan, which Leta was the mother of Helen. And um, Leta, according to tradition, was raped by the swan. Uh, there, there are all kinds of variations and permutations of that myth. And there are all kinds – in some, she's seduced, I believe. Uh, but there's always this – Issue of power and dominance and usually sexual violence. Yeah. Um, there are a million and one poems written about Lady and the Swan. And, um, the way that Goethe recounts it, he removes the violent elements, but also eroticizes the encounter between a human and an animal. Yeah. Okay. So he's going full on into this idea of removing the the kind of moral boundaries and just going with it. So Mephistopheles can't see anything of that. And the homunculus points out, your eyes are northern, steeped in medieval mist. In that mad world of monks and armor-plated knights, naturally your visions obfuscated. Dark ages are your proper habitat. Um Antiquity has nothing to do with the kind of moral northern value judgments, and hence Mephistopheles is out of his element yeah so um like the the concept of evil is is foreign to antiquity, according to Goethe so um the homunculus says, well, you know. Antiquity, there's this sort of classical Volpurgis Nox where all the things from antiquity are having their their sort of ghostly field day. Let's take Faust there and he'll be in his element. And so they're like, all right. And they descend <laughs> into the underworld uh, because the homunculus has this desire to be truly born, yeah. to be really real.
1: Yeah, he's like if Pinocchio was a sperm sample instead of a puppet.
0: Yeah, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> if if Pinocchio was a vial of cum, just sort of floating around and glowing. Yeah, um, it would be the homunculus. You know, that's that's really sort of perfect. And then you know he tells a <laughs> lie and breaks his glass, and
1: you know, and then yeah, and there you hey, go.
0: I, I'm not being any more gross than than <laughs> We're um,
1: we're simply following the text, everybody. It, <laughs>
0: Oh, Lord. Um, so, in any case, they descend to the underworld. And this is – the, the sort of fascinating thing. The first figure that they meet is Erichto And with Erychthro, e, that's very difficult to say. Erichto was a Thessalian witch um, from antiquity. And she shows up in Lucan's Civil War. Lucan wrote a, an epic of the Civil War of Rome. Mm-hmm. And she has this, she can raise the dead and she can speak to the dead. And she's, if I remember correctly, she's visited to see who's going to win the war. And she has all this kind of stuff. So she plays a, a role here and there throughout uh, the Farsalia. Um, here's the interesting thing. What Goethe draws from, and this goes back to what we were just discussing, that the sort of hodgepodge willy-nilliness of, of the text, the text written over many, many years, and the text as a kind of pastiche of other texts. Goethe goes deep with his references you know, yeah, like, yeah. I think I was joking in some of our texts back and forth that, you know, the Saint Joe Mama's, uh, classical references. <laughs> <laughs> it, it really isn't. And, and like, I kind of realized like, you know,
1: uh, and the listeners to the show probably know me as something of an armchair classicist myself, but that is very much in a different vein than the, what being into the classics, quote unquote, would have meant for Goethe's day. Um, because for me, it means just sort of, I, I have an abiding interest in what the, uh, like what, what the, basically what the historical sciences can tell us about these societies, right? So I, I read histories and archaeology, um, kind of, you know, sociological interpretations, stuff like that, right? I realize, you know, reading all of these, like, allusions and references that Goethe is making is that I have not engaged with the cultural texts hardly at all. Um, yeah. I, I, I realize I'm profoundly ignorant of the classics in the sense of those cultural products that would have been the, would abs- would have been the only curriculum for someone Interested in the classics at the time? Like I have not, I've not read these well,
0: plays. You know, I've, I've not I, read all these poems. I have, and this is a deep dive. Um, <laughs> no, I mean, like, all right. Here's the thing, the, uh, Eric. Though, all right that that was a a reasonable enough grab. That's a reasonable enough reference. Right. You've got the sphinxes. So, you know, the yeah. sphinx from, from Oedipus. And so he's, he's got that back. He's
1: got the, the griffins and the giant ants from Herodotus, you know, famously. Yeah. Uh, you know, and that, that one I do have because I, I have read the historians. So,
0: you know, <laughs> I, yeah. g-
1: give me that at least.
0: But then you've got. All right. He, he does, he goes a little bit deeper. So you've got Nereus. You've got, um, you know, Proteus shows up in, in The Odyssey, so that's not so bad. But And you've got Galatea. But then, all right, who knows about the Kabiri?
1: Yeah, that, that one was totally new to me. And, and that's like – I have a little more grounding in kind of religious figures and gods and goddesses and stuff because it comes up in like religious studies. Um, yeah. I had never, ever, ever heard of the Kabiri at all.
0: Yeah, the, the Kabiri were these kind of proto gods or sort of adolescent proto gods worshipped on a particular island. Mm-hmm. And they have a symbolic resonance because, you know, the, the homunculus is sort of fascinated with them because like him, they're in the process of becoming, but they're not become yet. Uh, but that's a deep dive, man. And there yeah. there are several others in here where you're like, where the hell did he pull that one from? Um, so this isn't like, hey, here's all right, you know my my favorite dumb joke. Uh, concerning antiquity shows up in Mel Brooks' History of the World, Part One, where um. The you know, he's mixing up his Greek and Roman myths, but it's Mel Brooks. He can do what he wants. Yeah. And, um, he, they're, they're walking through, um, the forum and Mel Brooks is a stand up philosopher and he's with, uh, this dude who he helped escape, Josephus, uh, this, um, play by Gregory Hines. And there's this dude with a sign that says, um, alms for the blind. And he's yelling, alms for a blind Oedipus, alms for a blind Oedipus. And then Mel Brooks and Gregory Hines walk past, and Oedipus goes, "Hey, Josephus," which was the name of Hines' character. Yeah, and Hines gives him five and says, "Hey, motherfucker," and they walk on. Right. Um, <laughs> it, it, you know, that was that was a long way to get to a dumb joke, but it's one of my favorite dumb jokes. Any like that's that's a common reference. That's that's something that that you know ninety percent of people can pull, or like seventy five percent of people. Can pull or twenty if you're from my neck of the woods, but um, it, it's a common enough reference. And Goethe's is not resting in that. He's he's going in in depth into a lot of stuff you probably never really encountered to sort of lash onto these symbolic resonances that bring it into a kind of coherence. It's it's sort of fascinating. Um yeah anyway uh <laughs> I'm going to keep saying that all night. So Erictho has this monologue at the beginning where she's basically looking over she's looking over the Pharsalian plain and essentially what she sees are the ghosts of the Roman civil war are rising fighting again and again and again night after night year after year. And for her, it's it's an eternal cycle. She says, How often it's self-repetition I've seen. It's never to end recurrence. Neither side accepts the other's rule, for none concedes a realm once seized by force and governs so. A man who cannot reign over his inner self lusts fiercely to control his neighbor's will, imposing what his pride dictates. Um, okay, so on the one hand, that's her sort of – castigating the civil war it's a lot of destruction for nothing Mm -hmm. it it ultimately ends with one side gains the territory and the rule for a certain amount of time and then another side will overthrow it and gain the territory and the rule for another amount of time and then another side It's, it's a historical cycle of violence and repetition um but it's also goethe commenting on the french revolution and the napoleonic wars
1: yeah Um, yeah, it's, uh, it's, it is kind of funny that he's making this like sort of, uh, you know, using this character as a mouthpiece for this kind of decrying the, uh, you know, fruitlessness of revolutions and, and things like that. And we haven't even gotten to 1848 yet.
0: (laughs) He was really, he was really in for it then. (laughs) Oh, yeah. Yeah. Uh, but I mean, it's, it, he, okay, the, the theory of revolution is that you're supposed to have this sort of climactic, it, it's really apocalyptic. You have this climactic, apocalyptic, violent moment where an old order is disposed of and a new order emerges that will, you know, keep the peace and be the perfect order. Um, but it never, ends that way. Yeah. You know? It's it's always something right around the corner. And so um it's it's Goethe seeing revolution in that light, that it's this um it, it's a cycle, right? And if it's cyclical, then revolution just doesn't function.
1: You yeah. Know? Yeah. Well it's it reminded me a bit of um there there is a uh a famous um North African Muslim scholar of the Middle Ages Ibn Khaldun who yeah, yeah. um is a really fascinating guy. He really prefigures a lot of what we call today economics and uh and uh sociology really. Um but he had a theory of a kind of life cycle of dynasties that I I think is kind of it, it ends up being kind of similar to this this idea being expressed where like there's it was a very cyclical Attitude toward political power and its upheaval and overturning, wherein there's a, an initial, you know, there's an overturning that happens. And in it, that it, the participants in it, whatever group have, have achieved it, they have, uh, done so with, uh, an excess of what he called, um, uh, asawiya, the sort of feeling of unity and oneness of purpose. And that asawiya is, dissipated over the next couple of generations into decadence. And then another group or, you know, partisans of some dynasty or some religious order with high asawiya is then able to overturn them and then falls victim to <laughs> the exact same dynamic. Um, yeah, uh, that was, I was instantly reminded of that, uh, reading, reading that. But it was like, Oh yeah, that's like a Ibn Khaldun's theory of, uh, of political upheavals.
0: Yeah. And, and you know, it, it's, uh- because, all right. Thank you for bringing that up. I mean, it it sounded to me, and this is you know oh, just. Oh, sorry. I have, I have
1: to. Know. I have to correct myself. It's Asabiya, not Asawiya. Sorry about that.
0: Oh, okay. Oh, no problem. Yeah. Um. <laughs> <Sorry>. I'll, I'll, <laughs> well, it's it's fine. <laughs> We're fine.
1: <laughs> Everything is fine. I just, I just want you know, I, if I'm mispronouncing an Arab term, I want to make sure I'm getting close to it.
0: Yeah, I think, you know, I, I hope our listeners know that we're doing this in good faith. We're not trying to denigrate anyone or any culture or anything like that. I, I, I hope our listeners know that. Um, I'll denigrate myself. That's right. (laughs) I'm a 43 year old podcaster. I'm denigrating myself every time we get together. But anyway, um, the, no, it, it reminded me of, this kind of modernist tendency like mm-hmm. um, the all right this is the the sort of <sighs> it's a thesis about modernism that I do and don't agree with but um, there there's this idea that a lot of the modernists in order to accommodate you know the rapid unprecedented technological, social, uh economic, political, you name it change that they were living through uh had a tendency to sort of step outside of their historical moment to try to um
2: Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns.
0: Articulate their historical moment uh, as part of a historical process or or to identify it with a past structure or a mythological structure in order to see it as a kind of cycle in some way, shape or form. Um, not everybody does this, but I can think of two particular moments where modernists did. Uh, William Carlos Williams spring and all uh, is his response to Elliot's wasteland because Williams thought Elliot was full of shit. Yeah, And um he, he basically moves outside of the, the, the cycle to say, okay, we're in winter now. We're in a period of destruction now. But the natural biological cycle of the earth is to move through these things. And he looks at the seasons to move from winter into spring. Um. So he kind of uses that to sort of step outside and talk about the historical chaos of his own moment as being part of a cycle. And that was also a tendency in Wallace Stevens to move outside of things to try to say, okay, so this is the way it floats along as a dialectic or as a part of a a natural cycle – or as a part of, you know, we move through this, then we have this, then we move through this, and we're at this stage now. Um, but it was kind of interesting to see Goethe doing that here. Um, this whole act, I mean, it, it really sort of occurs to me that this whole act in some way, shape, or form is taken up by issues of political revolution and just the kind of violence and chaos that Goethe lived through. I mean, I, I know act four has a lot to do with that as well, mm-hmm. but it's, it's all over the place. Um, there's action happening in the background, but it's overshadowed by absurd recreations in a burlesque way of violence. Yeah. You know, um, I guess the joke of this act is that okay what Faust is here to do is go off and find Helen and he does and we don't see his mythical quest at all it all <laughs> right. happens off stage
1: It was hilarious it was something I kept like I I you know I'm reading I was reading it and I kept thinking like well you know for a play called Faust <laughs> I'm not really we're not really following that guy's story at all instead we're following <laughs> Mephistopheles in the glowing jar of you know come on their magical journey of trading insults with, uh, you know, figures from uh, Attic Redware, you know. I mean –
0: Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) Like, you know, who needs the mythical quest of Faust when when we can have Mephistopheles telling yo mama jokes to a bunch of griffins?
1: Yeah, we're trying to, to, you know, feel up a bunch of witches and they turn into, like, sacks of sticks in his hand or whatever, you know. Yeah,
0: it's – I mean, it's – the action is completely uh obscured while we get Mephistopheles and Homunculus basically just kind of dicking around. And then a lot of it's not even concerned with them. The whole pageant at the end sort of sidelines those characters to introduce a bunch of deep-dive mythological characters. Yeah. <laughs> Performing this symbolic function. It's, it's such a bizarre structure, but this, it's, it's also what fascinates you, what, what's sort of fascinating about it. It's sort of like, um, uh, this is going to be completely out of the realm for 99% of our listeners, but there's this conspiracy theory about Montauk. Oh, um, yeah. Yeah. Do you know about the Montauk conspiracy? <laughs> I,
1: I, I am aware of it. I don't know the, t- the details though. <laughs>
0: It was, I mean, it was sort of like, uh, it, it was all sort of spawned by these two dudes, one of them who, it seems like he really had some issues with, you know, comprehending reality, but, um, he claimed that there was a deep underground military base on Montauk where they were, um, Abusing children to open up a time tunnel to contact aliens to do this to go back and what and it all gets involved with Nikolai Tesla who's two hundred years old. Uh-huh. Of course, there's Nazis involved, and you know there's aliens and reptilians, and it's kind of like if you took all conspiracy theories and threw them together into. One conspiracy theory, and um, if you try to just read up on it, you're like, okay, you know, it's going along and making sense, and then then they throw the reptilians at you, and you're like, okay, all right, so I have to accommodate this, and then they throw the time traveling plots to assassinate Jesus back there, and then (laughs) you know, you gotta accommodate that, and hey, that's the that's the that's
1: the plot of a Michael Moorcock novel. They can't just they can't just crib from that.
0: Yeah. Well, so, yeah, I I think they cribbed from a lot of things. Yeah. Um the the whole it's you know, it's my favorite conspiracy theory because the whole conspiracy theory uh revolves around uh saying that um this shitty sci-fi movie from the 80s is actually a true story and uh it's like so we can see your fantasy in action. Right, That's right. Anyway, to, to get back to it, that, I mean, that's that's kind of <laughs> what it feels like is that Gertz has just thrown – but where the Montauk theory or the Montauk conspiracies are frustrating and obnoxious and weird, there's something sort of charming about how just bonkers the structure of Act 2 is. Or the, the structure of the whole of Faust Part 2 uh it's sort of like all right just sit back and roll with it man um it's it's the spectacle aspect of it i think that's that's fascinating yeah all right so <laughs> they um they they touch down and faust comes back to life because here he's in his element and they decide to split up. Faust hears uh, – Mephistopheles and Faust and Homunculus meet the Sphinxes and uh the Griffins and Faust admires the monsters. They sort of – they're in his memory already. Like he has a sort of pre-awareness of them because he's read of them. And there's something about antiquity as well, which represents something primal for Grinta. Yeah. In any case, the Sphinxes tell um Faust to go find Kiron, who is the good centaur from dante yeah. um in in the Inferno. Dante goes to meet Kiron, who's one of the patrollers of hell, and um Here, he's not in hell. He's just in the underworld, but he's also a kind of heroic figure. Uh, I don't think he was necessarily heroic in Dante, but he was – he had admirable qualities despite whatever he represented. Here, uh, Kiran – is sort of restored to heroic status or semi heroic status and Goethe or or Faust gets on his back and they sort of trot around (laughs) in the underworld. Um, Oh, but uh, one thing that I missed was before Faust gets on his back, um, he has this moment where he sees a bunch of nymphs bathing and these are literal nymphs. Yeah. Yeah. The actual Uh, nymphs. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. He says this is from Luke's translation, Awaking vision, linger there, O you sweet forms beyond compare, projected by my longing eyes, what is this joy that fills me so? I have once felt it long ago. Are these now dreams or memories? Uh, how fresh the leaves that gently move on the dense bushes. Uh, through this grove, scarce rippling streamlets steal their way from all around. That shallow pool unites a hundred springs so cool and clean, and there the maidens play. Young, healthy limbs all mirrored clear in the moist surface, so that here my gaze redoubles its delight. They bathe a happy company. The bold swim, some way cautiously. All ends in a shrill, watery fight. With uh With these, my eyes should drink their fill. My mind should be content, but still... It Seeks what I have not yet seen. My gaze would pierce that leafy wall, that ring of verdure rich and tall, that veil which hides the lofty queen. Um, okay, <laughs> uh, uh, Gertha or, or Faust has basically wandered into. I mean, there's something sort of stereotypically, um, male gaze eroticized here. Uh, yeah, it's that kind of you know, ooh, a pillow fight. Kind of thing, um, the hint of, um, homoeroticism amongst the women as a sort of spectacle for the male gaze. Uh, but this is what I was talking about where, um, this is Goethe taking that kind of moral framework off the good and evil Framework off and sort of luxuriating in this sort of freeform erotic play. Now again, uh, like I just drew attention to the unacknowledged power structure in there, right? The male gaze. Yeah, but you can see what Goethe is is going for. Uh, you know, in in his own reading of things, right? So, Faust still wants Helen. So, he hops aboard Kiron, and Kiron um, sort of tells him a bunch of old stories about Helen. Part of the stories that he tells are really particularly disturbing. They're about her being sort of abducted when she was, I think, 12 or 13. Yeah. And Faust is a little taken aback. And, uh, oh, a little girl of ten, excuse me, even worse. Um, Faust is taken aback, and Karen says, You, I perceive, are misled by those scholars' make believe. Mythical woman is a special case. The poets freely choose her changing face. She never need grow up, grow old, or lose her looks. Abducted, so we're told, as a young girl, wooed as an aged crone. In short, the bard's not bound by time, bound by time, he makes his own. There's this way in which. All right, what exactly is he saying there? No. Uh, myth is a special case. Um, What does that mean? Does that mean that it's primal in some way and exists beyond things, so you don't need that particular kind of thing around it? Is it that myth is – a form of make-believe. There are certain parameters to it, but you can change the content around to make it fit the parameters, meaning you can reinterpret and rework according to the age and the time and the age's demands so that it's myth is not a timeless eternal truth, but a kind of permeable structure. Yeah. Um or is there something simpler that I'm missing or, 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 or overlooking this kind of way that, well, you know, okay, she was 10, but it's a myth. So it's a special case and that makes it okay.
1: Right. And I, I was especially sort of, you know, and I found myself thinking of like, say, uh, you know, Penelope in the Odyssey, right? Who, you know, he mentions that, like you know like a the the woman in myth is just always whatever the you know sort of at the opposite end, like you know you you put the the years together, and Penelope would not have been a young woman by the time that Odysseus got back, um yeah, but she's still you know besotted by forty horny weirdos who keep you know <laughs> drinking Odysseus's wine and eating his pigs um and i I guess maybe the thought was that in. This kind of, I don't know, I'm very, very much misusing this terminology, but I I was reminded of some sense of uh, the dream time, you know, that kind of, the kind of conception in Aboriginal thought of there being a, a time outside of time, wherein causation could happen, but time itself doesn't, or it doesn't work in the same way that it does now. So, or, you know what you know x x doesn't necessarily follow from y or whatever um and i guess that's kind of the interpretation i would go with it does make me think like well then why would it be important for anyone to point out that the age of the woman in question like if that's if this is all about sort of a timeless malleability then why does helen need to be 10 yeah it doesn't really i don't know Uh, i don't know
0: It's a creepy example and it feels like Goethe went to it for a particular reason to make a particular point. But I'm, if I wasn't as burnt out as I am and had access to the full university library, (laughs) then, you know, maybe I could, I could understand more fully, but I, you know, I don't know. If I want to open this up to say I'd be interested in people's thoughts because uh, yeah. I don't know where that would go. <laughs> right. Um, I, I, though I, I think our, our, our listeners are, are pretty stable. Um, the, the, the ones I've interacted with have been fine. Yeah. Have <laughs> been extraordinarily kind and pleasant. Um, in, in any case, uh, yeah, Kieran has this weird moment where he's trying to tell Faust that there's something about, Myth and the way that myth, um, acts that is different than reality or the literal and that y- you don't need to take it literally. You need to take it figuratively. Mm-hmm. All right. So he takes, uh, Faust to meet Manto, who's going to, um, well, Manto is another Thessalian witch. And she points the way to the land of the dead. And then they descend. And we're left with, you know, I guess about 30 or 40 more pages of Mephisto dicking around. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) All right. So this is all interrupted by um, Seismos, who's this... I guess, mountain volcano God who uh, blows a big volcano out of the middle of the classical uh, Valpargis or out of the classical underworld. And this begins Goethe's satire of revolution sort of in full and also opens up this kind of scientific debate, which was going on at the time, volcanism versus Neptunism uh volcanism this idea that change happens in this kind of radical way it's sudden ruptures that you know create these kinds of this lasting changes landforms as yeah. opposed as and that would be the revolutionary part as opposed to neptunism where change is liquid and gradual and fluid over time And that would be the kind of, I guess, anti-revolutionary part. Uh, from what I read around Goethe's own politics were, were, were pretty staunchly anti-revolutionary, but he did seem to think that the French Revolution was the aristocrats' own fault. Yeah, no shit. But anyway, (laughs) um, you know, if they hadn't, if they hadn't been leeches, then, Starving the public, if they'd been good legislators and had you know done what they were supposed to do, then none of this would have ever happened. Yeah, um, but that's kind of stating the obvious, uh, anyway. Um, so there, there's this long, drawn out allegory. Uh, that's a sort of critique of the revolution. Uh Mephisto keeps meeting with different figures, the Lamie, and they sort of taunt him. Uh they turn into sticks, and the sort of donkey headed woman, shows up, and they all transform and get away, and they they sort of leave Mephistopheles um uh well, I guess in Leonard Cohen's term, he has to go home with his heart on. So anyway, um, <laughs> Uh, the homunculus reappears and they sort of leave and have a, a momentary sit-down where the homunculus wants to be born properly and break the glass and he wants to learn what's natural. And that's when they come across Anaxagoras and Thales, two pre-Socratic philosophers. Uh, Anaxa- uh, Anaxagoras uh, represents the kind of Vulcanist argument – and he's urging Homunculus to take this, you know, sudden, quick, transformative change. Mm-hmm. And Thales is the Neptunian, so he's like, slow, gradual, be liquid with it, dude. And, <laughs> right. um, and Exagoras has what's literally a lunatic vision. He sort of prays to these Chthonic gods to draw down the moon. Um, that's a, a Greek witch thing. Mm-hmm. Um, and, uh, this comet comes and blows him up. <laughs> <laughs> yes. Um, now that's apparently the comet that they saw at the beginning of the classical Valpurgis knocks. Ah. And, um, it, it, sorry, it doesn't blow him up. It knocks something off of the, um, the mountain and sort of creates this sense that, you know, He's lost in his own explosion, which he thinks he conjured. And Thales basically wins the argument. All right. And then Mephistopheles is told of the four kids. And that opens up a really weird section of the text. As if it wasn't strange enough already. The four kids, I I did some poking around and I haven't seen them – Outside of Goethe. I, I don't know hmm. where he got yeah. this, I don't know what this is talking about. Um uh, a Dryad tells him uh the four kids, approach them if you dare, speak to them if your blood does not run cold. And Mephistopheles just sort of shrugs, why not? I see. Now this is the most bizarre in all humility. I must avow I've never met creatures like this till now. They're worse than Mandrake roots. How are even the blackest oldest human sins still to seem ugly if comparison begins with this unholy trinity? Um, what's sin supposed to be if this is something uglier and more hideous than it? He's drawn to the hideous and he's drawn to this kind of primal ugliness, right? It's it's a sort of yeah primal grossness. Even our most odious hells are places where we'd not uh, let them show their faces. How in the very land of beauty can this freak grow and be reverenced as antique? They stir, they seem to sense my presence. How they squeak like vampire bats, they're gibbering now. Um, Okay, in this land of beauty, there's still this thing. Mm -hmm. And it's what draws Mephistopheles, but in this In this framework, they're not exactly evil, are they? Because there is no evil. Yeah. They're just another part of this world, you know? Um, Whatever they are is just another piece of antiquity. All right. So, um, Mephistopheles – Sort of sings their praises and tries to ingratiate himself. And at first they're a little wary, but then they draw him in because there's something about him that's just like them. Yeah. And so there, there are three of them, and they have um they they split up their eyes and teeth. And lends some to Mephistopheles, and so once he has an eye and a tooth, then he can become like them. All right. So the this is kind of strange, but the 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 reading I was doing and the the way I was sort of reading around this, it seems like it's a kind of burlesque. Of the IntelliKey. And I think we were talking about this with Act One. Yeah. But the IntelliKey is sort of like Goethe's idea of this sort of universal return, this kind of, um, world consciousness. And I don't know, maybe, maybe I'm misreading this, but it seems sort of proto Jungian, this kind of, um, mass primal consciousness. And things emerge from them at different times and then go back to them or something like that. But this is sort of like that way in which you can see yourself in the place or, or not in the place or identify. But this is kind of a, a, a transference from self to selves or self to other selves. Joyce gets into this in Ulysses, uh, metempsychosis, this idea of – reincarnating in different times and places and joyce thought that literature was a way to do this um the transference of souls takes place when we engage in these aesthetic works and see ourselves in them and then they inhabit us at the same time yeah um i think that's how Goethe is sort of thinking about this but this is mephistopheles enacting a kind of Gross burlesque version of that, where, you know, he identifies with this hideousness and then becomes a part of it and it becomes a part of him, you know? Yeah. Um, I guess what Goethe is pointing out is that, you know, to use that Ghostbusters term, the door swings both ways. Yeah, yeah. Anyway, this might be the the top episode for our weirdest, um, <laughs> frames of reference or
1: but it's uh, it's it's really it's one that i think um as as Goethe is demonstrating the length and breadth of his his mastery of uh uh classical esoterica, so too do we exhibit our breadth <laughs> of expertise in all manner of t- <laughs> all manner of references to make in trying to explain what the hell he's talking about. Oh,
0: Lord. <laughs> Now you know why I'm still just a piece of shit adjunct. But, um.
1: <laughs> oh. the Come now. Dude. The, the ad- adjuncts are the atlas holding up the world of uh, higher education, sir.
0: Uh, yeah. Uh, anyway, um, the, the four kids are also reminiscent of the mothers.
1: Yes, yes.
0: The, the mothers were those, those creatures that Faust had to visit in part one in order to revive the spirit of Helen and so they are a parallel to it i i i think they're meant to be this kind of weird primal thing you know so take it for what it is it it, it just is weird uh in any event we move on from the four kids and there begins our weird aegean pageant mm-hmm. um we move to another scene entirely where there are a bunch of sirens hanging out the sirens talk them to the nereids and triton uh tritons um and the the whole point of all this stuff you know Thales and the homunculus eventually you know break into the scene, but the whole point of all this stuff is that it's fluidity it is the neptunism and and it's the the pageant of the triumphant of Neptunism, gradual change, but also you know in a literal sense fluidity uh, ambiguity and ambivalence and fluidity, and just things sort of in flux um in the act of becoming. But not quite there yet. So, of, of course, this um, this has this kind of symbolic resonance with the homunculus and with um, Faust as well. All right. So, a couple of things happen. They meet Nereus, who then uh, takes them to – like he's kind of an old grouch. And then um we're introduced to Proteus, and then finally, we have the um the the Nereus has this glimpse of his daughter Galatea, and Galatea arrives in this chariot that sort of comes out of the ocean um composed of this big shell, so she's this kind of Venus figure, yeah, you know, I think of Botticelli's birth of Venus. And um, she rides around and – oh, yeah. In the middle of all this, there's this little bit about the Kibiri. Um They seem <laughs> yes. to have huge symbolic resonance. They show up for like 12 lines. Uh, in any event, at the end of it, the Homunculus is still trying to figure out how to be born. He's overwhelmed by the beauty of Galatea. And as I, I mentioned before – he throws himself against her chariot and splatters. <laughs> yes. And the whole of the Aegean rejoices. <laughs> um, you know, this is the sirens. Uh, What fiery wonder transfigures the sea, the waves splinter and glitter, what storm can this be? All shining and swaying, a progress of light, those bodies aglow as they move through the night, and the whirl of the fire all about and around. Now let Eros, first cause of all, reign and be crowned. Uh Aha. There you go.
1: (laughs) Making it very explicit by invoking Eros there, yes.
0: Yeah, as if it wasn't explicit with the glowing jar of cum (laughs) floating through (laughs) the classical underworld. Yeah, yeah. It's,
1: uh, I, mean, I, I think that's. What um, uh, I mean. What have we there but the little death? eh?
0: exactly. No, I, I mean absolutely and exactly. It's it's it's, skirt it's to throw in everything at it to exemplify this chaotic erotic urge. And all right, the, I keep thinking about it as chaotic erotic urge. Um, not just because that sounds kind of fun to say, but. Uh, it goes back to what we were talking about when we were doing Don Quixote, when, you know, um, Echeveria pointed out, uh, it, the, the, oh, what is it? The nighttime scene or the painted sky mm-hmm. at night is this sort of figure in the Baroque and, um, Don Quixote has that when he goes and lays down in an inn and looks through <laughs> to, to see the sky because the, the, the night, it, like the, the roof is so shattered. But then, um, at another one of the castles he goes to, it's, it's the one where there's the, um, disabled one-eyed uh, you know, really kind of gross woman who's the prostitute who's going to visit the mule driver. And, uh, in the middle of the night, it's so dark that she mistakes Don Quixote for the mule driver and the mule dr- and Don Quixote mistakes her for Dulcinea. Yeah. And then the mule driver comes in and they get into that big fight. And then, um, you know, in the middle of it, <clears throat> the, the feds show up. So the brotherhood has a member who goes upstairs and then he gets beat up and smashes a lantern over Don Quixote's head. Um, You know, part of what Echevarria was pointing out was that this is pre-Freudian Eros as chaotic, mm-hmm. Eros as uncontrollable, uncontainable. And the nighttime brings out all of this material. Um, You know, there's this way that act two enacts that. Like, it's it's our nighttime scene where everything is just cut loose. And it's frustrating because the range of reference is so deep. And two, because you got to stay on your toes. I mean, we were talking about this with Act One that, um, you know, he doesn't define which character is which until, you know, maybe – one hint is dropped. Oh, that's not really the magician. That's Faust disguised as a magician. Yeah. Or that's not really the jester, jester. That's Mephistopheles disguised as a jester. Um, he doesn't really give you, uh, a, a, a hand up. He just says, here, deal with this. Um, but the here deal with this nature of it gets at that sort of underlying erotic drive just the free form of it all there's something okay in, in anyone else's hands or, or in another writer's hands this could really be obnoxious and overly yeah um formulaic but there's something about just you know maybe it is that that fractured nature of picking it up putting it down picking it up putting it down it just seems more openly inventive than anything yeah you know
1: yeah well I think that's the, again the virtue of the uh, that sort of episodic or throw whatever you want in there sort of approach to it I, I think that that helps cut what could be a very sort of I don't know if didactic is the word um, but just a yeah. very, yeah, I'll go with it. Didactic. Um, just the fact that there are those asides where Mephistopheles gets, you know, fucked with by some witches, you know, or, or we get like a, a little, you know, a little visit with, uh, you know, in, in the midst of this psychosexual Freudian romp, we get a critique of, uh, revolutionary politics it, it told through the story of a, of a, of a chthonic, uh, god of earthquakes like you know that that has to be how how he makes it work cuz it's like you you know that it's like he's i don't know it's well, see, it's it's a, I- it's a serious it's a serious thing like you know he's he's putting real serious effort toward it but it's almost like he's not taking it all that seriously
0: yeah and you know i i wonder about The presence of the revolutionary stuff. I mean, I'm not going to try to make the mistake of saying, you know, there's this overarching structure which makes everything make sense. But why that here? Uh, Like, you know, is it that life is going on within these cycles of creation and destruction and revolution and war and all this other stuff, you know, in the middle of that? You know, we're still having our fun and we're still like, there's this thing that's primal beyond that or, or before that, I suppose, you know, to get that sense of primal. Um, is it that, is it, or is it that life goes on despite all of these things? Yeah. Um, I, I'm not really quite sure it does it, you know having that that sort of revolutionary treatise it seems purposeful, but like like having it as part of this kind of erotic reverie it's it it seems purposeful, but what is the purpose? yeah, I really don't know um but anyway, that's what's sort of. I guess interesting or enticing is that it seems like it, sh- it seems like it fits even when it doesn't. Yeah. You know?
1: Yeah. Absolutely. I guess that's the real, that's the real magic of Goethe. Uh, yeah. <laughs> it, it really is. And I think it sort of goes to like the, I think we see in, in Faust and all, I mean, it's not biographical necessarily and, you know, death of the author, blah, blah, blah. But, I, it, it does seem like there's a unity in it, despite it being so, uh, fragmented and fragmentary, simply because it's clearly the work of this one guy who was like, this really is my life's work.
0: <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Um, the, I mean, it, it, it doesn't seem, I'm trying to think of the counterpoint. It, it, it seems inventive. Mm-hmm. Like, okay, what's going to come next? Okay, yeah, yeah. What? What kind of framework can I put this in? Oh, and then what's going to come next? Um, and and there's a a playfulness to it that's that's kind of enticing, despite some of the creepiness of what what Kieran says, right. Yeah. Um, there's a playfulness and despite and also despite the misogyny um we're not out of the woods with the misogyny in fact we, we won't be <laughs> uh, you know the,
1: i mean the ending i am seeing how part one went i wouldn't expect we would be anywhere uh, yeah, close to out of the woods yeah
0: and, and i mean the ending of the play is is you know it's it's a little sketchy but at least you know this this dream of loosening up some of the repressive nature in order to find a kind of sexual liberation well, even if it is within the patriarchal gaze at least it's something i guess
1: it's it's uh, um, it's gesturing towards something a little more complete
0: yeah I, oddly i think byron was a little more radical um you know, everybody knows Byron's reputation, I suppose, yeah, but if you read Don Juan, okay, I know it's Don Juan, everybody knows it's we've Don Juan.
1: we've talked about it on the pod, yes,
0: <laughs> yeah, yeah, but um the whole the whole idea within Don Juan is that, um, if you can. It's really pre Freudian, but if Byron has this hope that if we can get past our hang ups male and female, if we can move beyond sexual repression, then we can fa into this realm of sexual liberation, then that's a kind of primal repression um which will undo other kinds of social and political repressions, yeah. Well, it hasn't worked yet, but I don't know. It <laughs> seems fun to keep trying. Uh,
1: yes. Free your ass and your mind shall follow, everyone. Yeah.
0: <laughs> 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 Who knew George Clinton could do so much better than Byron? <laughs> um, but anyway, you know, it, it, Goethe, I think, is is a little more stuffy than Byron. Hell, uh, you know, Russ Meyer was more stuffy than Byron. <laughs> <laughs> but um, but you know Goethe I think is a little stuffier than Byron but has that kind of gesture which you know I, I at least admire um anyway I, that I think that gets us through act 2 yeah um I I'm still in this in this weird way I'm still enjoying this I think we've begun articulating what it is that makes this enjoyable mhm Um, it's, it's the inventiveness, it's the, the silliness, it's the weirdness or, or really the wildness, but it's wildness. That's not completely anarchic. There's a kind of, you know, control or structure to it, even though Goethe really is throwing everything and the kitchen sink at it. Um, I, I think that's what makes it so fascinating.
1: Absolutely. And uh, yeah, I think it really, we were, we were really able to articulate that. Uh, I, I think that's, that's been swirling around my response to this text this entire time. And I, I really think it was with the, with the absolute balls to the wall madness <laughs> of this particular yeah. act that it finally sort of clicked into place like, Oh yeah, that's what's kind of, you know, getting me through all this. But I, I am excited to see where we go from here because yeah, who the hell knows? <laughs>
0: Well, we go to um, Goethe – I guess I'll spoil it. But Act 3 is Goethe basically writing or or rewriting uh, a classical tragedy and then revising it into contemporary or at least medieval – no, I believe it's contemporary um, German – Concerns, Hmm. and so it's a fusion of past and present. um, The marriage of Faustus and Helen. Uh, Hart Crane did a poem of that that name that takes this motif. Yeah. Um, The the wedding of the beauty of antiquity with the kind of drive of the modern. Yeah. Um, Well, it don't last, but
1: (laughs) but hey, you know.
0: Act three was the, the heart of it for Goethe. Yeah. Um, that, that was the piece that was sort of like, okay, this is what I need to get to. Yeah. Interesting. Then the rest of it is, okay, we'll, we'll get there. We'll,
1: we'll get to there when we get there. But yeah, well, I'm excited to see, uh, to, to read that next and, uh, and, and share our insights and, um, confusion <laughs> with, with the yeah. listeners here, with the listeners who we have established. Every listener out there is a sweetie. And, uh, we yeah. think you're all great.
0: No, I really, uh, like, uh, every interaction I've had with, uh, a listener has been fantastic. I met a, a few people at intelligence speech, um, and, uh, and we've gotten emails from a couple of people here and there. Yeah. And, uh, it's, it's always just the, the, the nicest stuff, the nicest commentary people want to interact and, and, you know. Uh, engage, and they're they're very pleasant and very yeah. nice.
1: And, I, and I'll <laughs> tell everybody, we wouldn't be doing this if we didn't love to yak about you know books and stuff. So mm-hmm. yeah, reach out, send, send an email, or uh, you can find us on uh, Twitter uh, at Cannonball Pod. You can shoot us a message there. Um, yep. And uh, yeah, we like we just love yakking about this stuff. It's neat. I just think <laughs> it's neat. <laughs>
0: alright well I guess that wraps this up I hope you enjoyed this episode you know uh, find us where you'll find us and listen in for act 3 it's coming up soon